Good morning again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find that on page 15. There's a Bible that should be nearby on the racks in front of you. Page 15. Genesis chapter 1. We're continuing our Father Abraham series where we've been studying uh, the life of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, seeing how he's a struggler just like we are, learning to trust in God's promises. Um, and then in the fall, a couple more weeks in this series, and in the fall, we'll be studying Romans together. Uh, and a lot of the arguments in Romans are built on the faith of Abraham here in Genesis. So this week, we're calling it Promised Laughter in Genesis chapter 21. Uh, we're going to see the birth of Isaac, and Isaac's name means laughter. That was a good murmur response there. Very good. It means laughter. So next time I do that, you'll be ready. Isaac's name means laughter. So we're talking about the birth of laughter, the promise being fulfilled here in this promised child coming to um, Abraham and Sarah very late in their life. It's been a long time. Genesis 12 to here is about 25 years from when God said, hey, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to fulfill these great promises. And now 25 years later, he's fulfilling this promise and naming the promised child laughter. Uh, About 15 years ago, I was in seminary trying to finish up graduate school. It was about a three and a half year long program. So it was a hard program. We, are, we had a couple of kids when we started, had a third kid there at the end. Um, so three kids working a couple of part-time jobs. I think maybe at one point, right when the third was born, it was three part-time jobs. Um, just trying to kind of survive. You know, it was the last semester I'm remembering now. We had three kids. It was about halfway through the semester. And I was working for the student services there at the seminary, like the dean of students department. Um, did stuff to kind of enrich student life, almost like the youth ministry for the grown-up seminary students, in a sense. And uh, so they were going to take a bunch of us to a conference. So it was the dean of students, it was the dean of academics, and one of our really scary systematic theology professors uh, taking us on this trip. So so a bunch of about 10 student leaders going going to this conference in Pittsburgh, um, and it was going to be basically where we learned more about theology and culture and how to, you know, help our seminary be better and stronger Um, And we were going to learn a lot of deep stuff at this conference. Um, And it was a nice kind of break, right? Because it's just been working a grueling schedule, tired, just kind of clawing my way to the finish line, just, you know, feeling like I was just barely going to make it to finish seminary. So this was kind of a little nice weekend break to go away to this conference. Um, We'd been really stressed out, been working really hard, went to this conference, learned a lot of really deep stuff, really deep theology and culture and all kinds of stuff. And we were having this special meeting at the end of the first night of the conference. And I remember, I'm kind of picturing the place. It was one of those kind of like fancy suites in a hotel where it looked like a living room. Have you ever been, been in one of those rooms? Or at least seen them in movies. This is the only time I've been in one of those. So I, I was in this kind of fancy living room suite type thing, meeting room. Um, and we were having this meeting with the two deans and the theology professor. And there was this other guy that was joining us. It was this really brilliant theologian who's an apologist. And we're all just having this really deep, serious meeting, right? And the way it kind of happened was there wasn't enough seating in the middle, so me and a friend were sitting off to the side, which is kind of bad news waiting to happen, right? So me and this friend are sitting off to the side, and it's kind of dark, and it's late in the evening, and we've been stressed out, and we're we're about ready to graduate. So my friend just keeps whispering stuff to me the whole time, right? Like they're having this deep theology discussion. My friend's whispering stupid like Beavis and Butthead things to my, you know, in my ear, while this conversation is taking place. And so it was this incredible contrast of like a deep and serious situation where I really wanted to be thinking deep thoughts, yet I can't help but snicker over here 
in the corner. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you just kind of can't stop laughing and you're just kind of, I was like giggling like a little girl, trying not to let it out, you know? Um, and it was one of those awkward moments where I think the pressure had just built and built and built and finally it was releasing, right? We just had, you know, we were relaxing, we were away from school, we were about to graduate. And really, it's this guy's fault that was whispering stuff in my ear. You know, he's saying stupid things to me, and it's just making me laugh. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you just can't help but laugh. You know, it's not really the appropriate time for it. Um, Thankfully, I didn't get into any trouble or anything. But, you know, we're just kind of giggling off to the side. You can't stop the giggles. You can't contain it. It just kind of erupts. And the story this week is one of those kinds of stories where the laughter erupts. There's, There's been this tension that's been bottled up for for 25 years, they've been waiting for God to do this thing that already was a ridiculous, crazy thing. And when it finally happens, it's just like the dam bursts and they laugh. And it's not the inappropriate, like it, it could be argued that my laughter with my friend was inappropriate, right? It was the wrong setting. But this laughter is not inappropriate because God says, name the baby laughter. That's what I'm doing. I, I'm bringing this joy into your life, this unexpected joy that you didn't think was going to happen. When people study humor and laughter, they say generally it's the unexpected happening. That's what makes us laugh, right? There's something we expect to happen and something unexpected happens. And as long as, you know, nobody dies, we laugh, right? We just can't help it and it comes out of us. And that's the story here. This is something really amazing and unexpected, but God said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this unexpected thing. You're going to laugh. And as a matter of fact, you're going to name the baby laughter. So let's look at the story. Let's read this fulfillment of God's promise. It's the fulfillment of laughter and of joy. Chapter 21, verse 1, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, which means laughter, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac, which means laughter, was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son. In his old age. It's completely unexpected, even though God had said, this is going to happen. It's laughter. It's a surprise, but it's a promised surprise finally being fulfilled. Let me pray for us and ask that God would teach us this morning from the story. God, we thank you for the laughter that you bring into our life. We thank you for this story. We pray that you would teach us through it, that you would help us to understand what you're doing and how you want to bring these kinds of promises in our own life. Lord, we know every situation is different, but you remain the same. You are this promise-keeping God that brings joy to our lives. So we pray that you'd help us to trust you, to trust in your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think of the fulfillment that God is bringing here, the the promise that is finally taking place, um, we see this kind of unfold in stages in the story. And the first thing that I think the story highlights for us is the unconditional nature of the promise. The promise is unconditional. And what unconditional means is it wasn't waiting for Abraham to do ABC and then God would fulfill the promise. 
God just kept saying, I'm going to do this because I'm a gracious, promise-keeping God, and he did it. And we get that mixed up in our life, and so this is a really important principle for us to understand. God is gracious, and he does his thing, and then we respond to his graciousness, we respond to his promises with the conditions that we keep. But we often reverse that, and we think, oh, I've got to keep these conditions in order to trick God into loving me in order to earn approval from God, in order to get God's attention. But the story of the Bible is that the God of the universe, the God that created all things, the God that hurled the stars into the sky, he's coming after you. And he's keeping promises and he's showing grace to you because he's gracious, not because you've impressed him. And so because he shows us his grace, then we respond, then we do things to please him, then we do things to show him our love for him, then we love our neighbor, because he loved us first. And one of the things that highlights the unconditional nature of the promise in this story is the chapter that comes right before this. And I actually skipped it, so I'm going to give you a couple of verses from that chapter. Just so you know how I did this, when we planned the summer, I was like, we want to do the life of Abraham. We're going to do roughly verses, uh, chapters 12 through 22, because next week's kind of the highlight of the whole story. Uh, And so I just kind of divided that up into weeks and found a couple of places that I just didn't have time for, right? So We skipped chapter 20, but it's an important one to go back to to give us context for this. I'm just going to read two verses from chapter 20. It says this. It should sound kind of familiar to you. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Okay, that part may not sound familiar, but listen to verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Does that sound familiar? If you've been with us this summer, Abraham did the exact same thing in Egypt a few chapters before, right? And and as we think about spiritual development, we would like to say, well, that was immature, Abraham. You know, he was just beginning to learn about God earlier on when he sold his wife out to the Pharaoh of Egypt and she was taken into the Pharaoh's harem. He lied, said she was his sister. She got taken as a wife with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and then God set him straight right? And we would like to say, well, that was just immature Abraham. Now he's this mature, super spiritual giant, but he's, he's doing the same thing. And I think we're purposefully shown that right before the fulfillment of the promise. It comes between God saying, no, really, I'm going to fulfill the promise next year. Then Abraham acts like an idiot again, and then the fulfillment happens. That highlights the unconditional nature of the promise. Now, does that mean you should go out and do stupid things to test God? No, you should be shaking your head. No, that's not what the text is calling on you to do. What this is highlighting is how great God's grace is. It's not encouraging us to do stupid things like Abraham. It's just showing that Abraham, like us, does stupid things, and the grace that God shows to him is unconditional. God doesn't take care of Abraham, bless Abraham, use Abraham because Abraham is perfect. And that might be frustrating for you, but I hope it gives you hope because none of you are perfect either. And I'm not perfect. And if God saving the universe depends on me getting everything right, then things are going to go really badly. And the same is true for you. No offense, but you're just not that great. You're just not that perfect, right? You're just not that holy, and neither is Abraham. And so this story highlights the unconditional nature of God's promises. God keeps his promises because he's a promise-keeping God not because we've done everything right. God shows grace to us because he's gracious, not because we've earned it. If you earn grace, it's not grace anymore, it's a wage. 
And so we see this principle highlighted just in the context of the story. So we don't have to read the next or the rest of the story in chapter 20, but let's look again at 21. 21 verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. That's a great verse, very simple, you know, Hemingway-esque sort of sentence there. It's just so simple, understated. There's not a lot to it, but God is the principal actor, and he did what he said he would do, right? I love the way this story is told. As we continue to read, it's still very simple. There's not a lot of drama. It's just saying, yeah, God God said he was going to keep his promise, and he kept it. The Lord is the principal actor. He's the hero. We've talked about this a lot here. As you read the Bible, you want to learn more and more to see yourself in Scripture, but to see God as the hero of Scripture, right? So you don't want to read Scripture in a way that makes God the hero and you have nothing to do with it. I mean, you want to see yourself in the Scriptures, but you want to recognize that it's about God. He's the hero. He's the champion of the story, and this verse really highlights that. The Lord did what he said he was going to do. Verse 2, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Again, this is unexpected. This is abnormal. This is not the way things normally go. Abraham was 100 years old. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now in Hebrew um, and in the ancient Near East, they had the distinction that we have in our culture. We, we would use this phrase, it's different to laugh with someone than to laugh at them, right? Have you ever heard that phrase before? We understand there's a difference in laughter, right? There's a kind of mocking laughter and there's a kind of celebrating laughter. There's the kind of laughter where it's a pressure release and it's joyful because everything's okay even though things didn't go the way you expected. And there's the kind of laughter where you're teasing someone or mocking someone or making fun of someone. Um, My wife has helped me learn that distinction over the years. If you've been married, you've probably had to work some of these things out in relationship, right? Because we all have different senses of humor. Some things you think are funny another dear friend of yours or spouse may not think is funny, right? So you kind of have to learn where those lines are. Well, the Hebrew has that distinction. And here, we're talking about joyous laughter. Later on in the next section, we'll see mocking laughter. But here, it's joyous laughter. She's she's talking about, this is a celebration. God promised the son laughter, and God has given me laughter, and people will laugh with me. And she's, she's celebrating that. And so we see this fulfillment of the unconditional promise and one of, the thing I think, one of the things I think is uh, helpful for us to understand here is part of what makes the unconditional promise unconditional is that it's not fitting the norm of how life operates. And this is a principle that I think is helpful for us to understand the Bible uh, because sometimes as Christians, as people that love God and love to see God supernaturally work in our world, we're taught that we should expect that all the time. And the problem with that is if you expect God to work supernaturally all the time in every moment, kind of expect one spiritual high after another spiritual high, um, that's not really the way reality works. When you look at the scripture, you see kind of normal, boring life, like the normal, boring life we live, and then it's punctuated by surprising invasions of God, by God showing up in surprising ways. And, and just, I know this sounds almost ridiculous, but 
what makes it surprising when God shows up and when God does something unusual is that it's unusual. I mean, that's what the word supernatural means. Supernatural assumes that there's a natural, right? Unusual assumes that there's a usual. And so what I want to encourage you towards is to expect life to be usual while you pray for God to do unusual things. Expect life to be natural. That's how life is. Many days of our life are boring and natural and normal. But pray and live in hope of God doing these abnormal, unusual things. Pray and invite God in to your story. One of the things we see in the Gospels is the kingdom breaking in. The future kingdom of all things being made right, breaking into the now in the presence and in the life of Jesus. And we want to see the kingdom break into the now through our lives as well. And so we pray and we ask God to do unusual and abnormal and supernatural and unconditional things in our life. We pray that God would show up in unexpected ways. We invite him to do that. We expect him to do that. But also that needs to be balanced with, you realize that normal life is normal life. And by definition, what makes unexpected things unexpected is that we kind of have a baseline of what's normal. So living out that tension is part of what it means to live the life of faith. We kind of expect life to be boring and ordinary and normal, and we pray that God would use us to bring his unexpected presence and grace, a taste of heaven where everything's going to be made right. We're, we're praying that we would be that presence in the now. One of my favorite pictures of that is in Romans 8 where it says all of creation is, is longing and groaning for the sons of God to be revealed, for, for everything to be made right. We know that day is coming. And as we walk out faith, as we depend on God, as we love other people, that's showing up in the now. That future present where everything's right is showing up now when you forgive someone. It's showing up now when you love someone. It's showing up now when you show unconditional care for the people in your life. So that's how we, we live these things out. So the unexpected. As I said, you know, scientists kind of study humor uh, and laughter, which just kind of seems gross and wrong that a scientist would study that. Uh, you know, I don't know. It seems like it should be more spontaneous than that. But anyway, they, they study it, and they would define uh, kind of the heart of what humor is, is the unexpected happening. And one of the classic cases is this one on the screen. Uh, it's the person slipping on the banana peel. And I have a question for you. Have you ever actually seen someone slip on a banana peel? Anyone? Okay. I didn't think so. Like, I've never seen that happen. That just never happens. But for some reason, it comes up in cartoons and movies all the time. Um, but it's emblematic. It's a symbol of something unexpected happening. And as I said, if someone's really hurt or if there's something really painful happening, it's not really funny, right? But when something unexpected happens and it's good, or at least it's not bad, we laugh. And it's this wonderful gift that God has given us. And so the story is about this beautiful fulfillment, again, of God doing the unexpected, showing us that God is going to do what only God can do, fulfilling this promise in an unconditional way. And that is supposed to strengthen our faith. That is supposed to show us that God is the hero, that we can trust him, that he's going to show up in this bleak, ordinary world of pain and death and broken relationships that God is breaking in. And it's supposed to stir our faith. So my prayer is that your faith would be stirred as well as my faith when we look at this story of the birth of laughter. We live in a we live in a world of tears. We live in a world of brokenness. Yet God gives us these little tastes of, of laughter breaking in here and now. And that's what this story is about. One of the great New Testament verses that summarizes this concept of an unconditional promise breaking in to our ordinary life 
is Romans 5.8. A lot of you probably know Romans 5.8. It says, while we were still sinners, or depending on the translation, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, just like we see in the Abraham story, Abraham was still doing some dumb stuff. He still wasn't always getting it right. But God shows up and fulfills his promise. And in our life, while we were yet sinners, we were in rebellion against God, Christ died for us. So the gospel story is that God's fulfillment of salvation, his keeping of his promise, is not based on us doing everything right and earning his love. It's based on his graciousness and kindness to us. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. God didn't wait for you to get everything right. He came to you in Jesus. And the story is that he, he took your sins upon himself on the cross, wiping them away, wiping the slate clean, and he gives you his perfect righteousness. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, he broke the power of sin and death in your life, fulfilling unconditionally the promise of salvation for us. So that should be our hope. As we move on in the story, we'll see then that there's really two different ways to live. There's living in faith according to the promise, or there's living according to our flesh. So I've titled this section, Promise Versus Flesh. Promise versus flesh. Are you living, am I living depending on God's promises, or am I living depending on my own flesh and my own strength? That's a question we should be asking ourselves. We see this come out in the way the story is told, just in the story itself, but then the New Testament kind of interprets this story for us in Galatians. So starting in verse 8, it says, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So as I said, in Hebrew, they have the kind of distinctions that we have, the subtle distinction of laughing at and laughing with. And so this word is translated laughing so we can see the connection, right? That's the same kind of word, but in Hebrew, it would have been spelled slightly differently. It's a slightly different intensified form that means mocking. It means laughing at you instead of laughing with you. And so that's what's happening. The, the other boy, the child of the flesh, remember, Ishmael, who was born by Sarah and Abraham saying, God doesn't seem to be fulfilling his promise, so we'll solve our own problem. That child is laughing at the miracle child, at the child that was born according to the promise. And so she sees this laughing. In verse 10, she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. As you can imagine, Abraham loved his son. His son's a teenager. He's been with him many years now. He wants to see him blessed. And Abraham's really struggling with this. He's displeased. He's brokenhearted at the thought of his son being cast out. Verse 12 says, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now we're going to get more story after this as we end, but let's just pause here and focus on this idea that God says, yeah, there really is going to be two different plans. One plan is me miraculously delivering a promise, and the other plan is you, Abraham, depending on your flesh to solve your own problems. And Galatians makes it clear that this is to symbolize to us what it means in our life, that we can either walk depending on God's promises to us, his grace to us, or we can walk depending on our own flesh. That's my question for you. My question for me is, do I live my life in such a way that I'm trying to solve my own problems? 
but I think I can save myself, fix myself, fix those around me according to the strengths of my own flesh? Or do I trust in God's promises? Matter of fact, the entire book of Galatians is, is really about that contrast, that promise versus flesh. I have a chart here I want to show you. kind of outlines how Paul talks about this in the book. So he starts as he describes this distinction between Isaac and Ishmael with this phrase, flesh versus promise. We see that as a description of this story, that one child is the child of the flesh and one child is the child of promise. But Paul has been using this distinction throughout the entire book of Galatians. So if you go back and study Galatians, you could go listen to our sermon series on Galatians from a couple of years ago. You'll see this contrast that comes up again and again. Paul uses these different terms. He also contrasts flesh with spirit. So you can either depend on your own flesh or you can depend on the Holy Spirit, the supernatural power of God in your life. He also says that's like law versus faith. You can depend on keeping the law to impress God with your own righteousness, or you can have faith. You can depend on Jesus who fulfilled the law for you. Now, just to clarify, and you get this if you listen to the whole Galatians series, that doesn't mean we want to break the law, right? It it means how you fulfill the law. Do you fulfill the law walking by faith with God because he's writing the law in your heart and you love him? Or do you fulfill the law because you're trying to earn his approval and, again, trick him into paying attention to you? and blessing you, and loving you. And so there's a distinction that Paul makes in Galatians. You can either live by trying to do the law by your own flesh, your own power, your own strength, or you can have faith in Jesus fulfilling the law for you. And then the final contrast is between slave and free, and that comes up in the story again as well. And it's really interesting. Paul is taking the pride of the Jewish people, and he's flipping it on its head, right? Because the Jewish people had, had struggled with some ethnic pride. So the Jewish people tended to think that they were a special ethnicity because of God's blessings to them. And so Paul, throughout the New Testament, is always saying, no, the people of God are multi-ethnic. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter what neighborhood you came from, what nation you came from, what language you spoke. What matters is faith. And so in their understanding of their background, because of this story about Isaac and Ishmael, they would say, well, Isaac was the promised son, and he's our genetic ancestor. And Ishmael and these other tribes, they're the bad people. We don't like those people because they're the wrong group. And and Paul's saying, no, the way you become a part of the wrong group is by trusting in yourself. The way you become a part of the right group is by trusting in God. And so this chart outlines that you're actually a slave when you think you can do it on your own apart from God. That's what makes you a slave, trying to be your own God, not trusting him but trusting in your own flesh. So again, Galatians works this out really beautiful, but this contrast presses us to ask, which, which side am I on? Am I trusting in God's promises? Am I trusting in the God that says, I'm powerful enough to save you, you can't save yourself? Or am I trusting in myself and saying, I can do it. I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I can solve my own problems. I can comfort myself. I can fix what's broken in my world. And what's really scary is is we often can come to a place of surrender, right? We can come to a place of faith and trusting ourselves to God, following him, understanding that Jesus is the only way for us to find hope in life and begin walking with him. But we can kind of slip back into leaning on those old solutions. We can slip back into those old gods. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 4.8, Paul even says to these 
non-Jewish people that by them being tempted to go become Jewish culturally in order to be saved and not just trust in Jesus, that they're in a sense going back to their old idol worship. They're just going to other idols, other false gods, because they're not really trusting God anymore. And that pattern can happen in our life. And so I want to encourage you, one of the ways that we fight that in our life is through worship. Part of how we design what we do together as God's people is we're singing these truths to each other. We're praying these things together. We're looking at God's word together. We're sharing communion together. We're encouraging each other to trust in God and not trust in ourselves. It's part of the weekly rhythm we have. I'd also encourage you to make daily rhythms in your life where you, you look at scripture, you memorize scripture, you begin studying it for yourself. And what's really important is that you would have real community and you'd have people in your life that could help you kind of hash through this. We see this again and again in scriptures that it's really important to have people that actually know you and, and know um, the rabbit trails that you're going to go on, know the, the holes you're going to fall into and, and help you navigate that, help you not trust in yourself and trust in God. So it's really important to have people that understand the gospel and understand you. A lot of us have relationships with people that understand um, the gospel, but they don't really know us that well. Or maybe they know us really well, but they don't really know how to encourage us in the gospel. And so I encourage you to find those kinds of relationships. That's one of the heartbeats and priorities that we have as a church staff is to connect you to each other. We don't believe that the solution for your problems is just having pastors that love you. We think the solution to your problem is the gospel being worked out in community together. I mean, I think pastors are important too, right? But we want to connect you to each other. We want to see you encouraging one another, locking arms with one another, coming alongside one another. You can do that by getting involved in small groups. You can do that by meeting uh, with one another, having coffee, praying together, encouraging each other to continue trusting Jesus instead of trusting yourself. Like, What does it look like to work that out in your daily life as you try to love your spouse, as you try to be faithful at work, as you try to um, take care of your kids, as you try to navigate what it means to be single in this world, all these different um, potholes that we face in life. How do we trust God instead of trusting ourselves? How do we rely on his promises instead of our own flesh. Well, the next thing that we see as the story continues is God still hears the outcast. I think this is really encouraging, the the turn that the story takes, because if you're like me, you you may feel sorry for Ishmael, right? I mean, you may be thinking, that seems kind of wrong that Ishmael's just getting the boot, right? Ishmael didn't do anything. Well, maybe he laughed, but that seems kind of harsh, right, to kick him out. Um, And so you might be struggling with this. And so Let's see how the story continues in verses 13 through 21. In verse 13, it says, And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God's saying great things are still going to happen through his line, through his descendants as well. Verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with a child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And so we have her wandering. Uh, most commentators would agree that there was a pretty straight path. Um, and if he'd, put in a, if he'd put a skin of water on her and put a skin of water on the boy and, you know, given them a map, they probably would have been fine. But, but something went wrong and they got lost. And again, we're told to interpret this symbolically that when you get lost and wander in the desert, that's a result of relying on your flesh, right? So Paul tells us in Galatians, it's good to interpret this in a way symbolically to, to kind of see ourselves in the story, 
right? So to, to back up to the earlier point, when I'm depending on my own flesh, that's going to lead to me wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the desert. And Paul tells us that's an important way to read this story. But what's cool is the story actually has deeper layers to it than that. God isn't just saying he's going to symbolically portray, depending on the flesh, and he's going to be damned, end of story, it's over, right? He actually meets them in the wilderness. So look at how the story continues. It goes on and it says uh, in verse 16, well, no, verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And just as an aside, um, she's helping him. He's a teenager at this point. On a first reading, it would sound like he's like a little baby and she sets him under a bush. But, you know, they're kind of like limping along together, right? Um, And so she helps situate him under the bush. They're dying of thirst. Verse 16, she went and sat opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Maybe it was hidden under a bush or something. We don't know why they didn't see it before, but now God's saying, there's a well of water right there. Grab his hand. You're going to be okay. I'm hearing you. Do you remember what Ishmael's name means? Anybody remember what his name means? Ishmael means God hears. God hears. So even Ishmael, who is the outcast, who symbolizes for us in Galatians what it means to rebel from God, to depend on flesh, God hears that person. So for those of you that that feel like God doesn't know where you are, that you're lost in the wilderness, I I grabbed a picture here of the desert. I I think a lot of people, this is a desert with dry bones. A lot of you, just when you got stationed at Fort Hood, you felt like, now I'm wandering in the desert, right? Um, Probably not a lot of you have actually legitimately been, you know, dying of thirst in the desert. But but figuratively, again, Paul says all this is figurative and this can... This can symbolize for us what it means to depend on our own flesh. We can come to a a desert place spiritually. We can come to this place of wandering in the wilderness, of hitting rock bottom, wandering away from God. Nothing is working in our life. And God wants you to see in this story that if you're in that place, if you're wandering in the wilderness, he hears you. Cry out to God. He hears you. You're not beyond his reach. If you're the wrong kind of person, if you're the person that is the symbol that's going to be written about in stories of someone who rebels against God, still, God hears you. That's what is so amazing and so beautiful about the story. This is the guy that's like one of the symbolic bad guys of the Bible. And what does his name mean? It means God hears. And what does God live out in the story? God comes to him and shows grace to him in the story. Where does Ishmael's life go after that? I I don't know. But God is showing us something really beautiful about him here, that if you are wandering in the wilderness, that you wandered from God, no matter where you are right now, you are not spiritually beyond God's reach. Recognize that God hears you. Call out to him. And if you'd like help, I'd, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Any, any of the leaders of the church, we'd love to talk to you more about what it looks like to move out of the wilderness and to begin trusting God and his promises. God's the one that hears you. I, I 
I just get to be like Hagar, right, and grab your hand and say, here's the well. Here's the water. We found some water. But we'd love to help you. That's, that's why we're here. Your friends, if your friends invited you to church, that's why, that's why they invited you. We, we'd love to help you live that out. What does that look like for you to cry out to God in the midst of your spiritual uh, wilderness and know that God hears you, know that he's answering your cry? So they found the water. She God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. This is a happy ending based, again, not on the people's heroism, perfection, moral righteousness. This is God being the hero because God is gracious, because he loves us, because he pursues us. As we think about this promised laughter that God fulfills for us. I want to take you back to a promise that Jesus makes in the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew 5. We have kind of different versions of these blessings that Jesus gives. They're called the Beatitudes from the Latin for blessing. And they're often, you know, blessed is the one who is hungry and thirsts for righteousness. Blessed is the one who's poor in spirit. You know, we're used to that language. Many of you have probably heard that before. It could be translated happy, right? Or celebrating or uh, wonderful or fortunate. There's this idea that when things are bad, that actually spiritually there can be some blessing there. And Jesus says in Luke 6.21, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. Happy are you who weep now, Jesus says, for you shall laugh. Jesus is promising If you cry out to him, if you depend on him, he will bring you that promised laughter. That laughter will break into your weeping and your mourning. He's the God who hears. Let me pray for us and we'll respond together in worship. God, we thank you that you love us, that you hear us. I pray that you'd help us to learn to trust you, that we would be a people that surrenders completely to you and follows you. Thank you for the grace that you showed Abraham. Thank you for the grace that you showed Hagar and Ishmael. Thank you that you hear the outcasts. And God, we confess that we often feel like we're beyond hope. We often feel like we're all on our own, that no one can hear us. We thank you that you've put in this story that that you're the one that hears. We can cry out to you and that you will come to us, that you will bless us, that you will love us. We thank you that you most clearly painted that picture in the life of and death of Jesus who took our sins upon himself on the cross and who gives us his resurrection life. Help us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.